This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Jack Barsky had gone to Staten Island to retrieve the materials left for him at a dead drop site by the KGB. The contents of the container would offer him an immediate pathway out of the United States and back to Moscow and then home to Germany. But he was forced to leave empty-handed when he could not find the container in the dark of night. Jack could not delay this decision any longer. He was forced to make the choice between staying in America with his little princess Chelsea and wife Penelope or going back home to Germany where he would again be reunited with Gerlinda and Matthias. As he walked out of the park, he made his decision. I'm going home. And home was Queens, New York. Devil may care to hell with everything else. I'm going to stay with Chelsea. And honestly, it was really close. I'm not trying to play the hero here. Somebody else made that decision for me. If I find the container, I don't know, but I think I would have left. That was it. I couldn't go back. Now I had to worry about the fallout from this decision. But just because Jack had made his decision, it didn't mean he could just go silent and ignore the looming threat from the KGB. They had been watching him. He had already been confronted by the mysterious Russian on the subway platform. He had to find a credible explanation for the reason he was not coming back. I immediately sit down and I write a letter in which I express that I would not go back. And that was the second biggest lie that I ever told in my life. I just wanted to make clear to them that I wasn't defecting, right? Because for, for two reasons, I knew that they were not treating defectors uh, very well, number one. Number two, I really still had some loyalty towards my home country, East Germany. Jack knew that there were two things the Soviet Union had come to fear more than anything. Ronald Reagan and AIDS. What I wrote in the letter is, I cannot come back because I have contracted uh, HIV AIDS. And then I made it a little more believable by telling them who I thought I got it from, who she got it from. It was an old girlfriend who had a boyfriend who uh, was a, a drug addict. They already knew about the old girlfriend because I literally had to describe everybody who I had more than superficial contact. So she got AIDS, she infected me, I have AIDS, I can't come back. This is the only place where I think I might have a chance to get treatment to survive this thing. And then I made it a point, I says, I am not going to the FBI, I am not defecting, loud and clear. The other thing I asked them to do is, please give the dollar savings that are on my account to Galinda. I had the gall to ask them to do that. Well, you know, I, I was deathly ill, right? So I, I, I mailed a letter and I still, I turn on the radio every night. It was beeping every, every night at uh, 9.15. And one day it stopped. That's when I knew they had read the letter. The next day I got off the train and walked on the bridge and dropped the radio into the river. 
And that was the end of my association with the KGB, the official end. It is so easy to make something like that up because it plays well, it makes people cry. And so I really checked myself. Am I honest about this? Am I really honest? I've sorted this through many times over several years and I always came up with the same answer. Everything that was good for me personally was over there. What was over here was the threat of the FBI and the KGB and Chelsea. There is nothing else in, in play. So it was Chelsea. I do believe that this is not so unique. It was a unique situation to be in, but I do believe there's many, many people who would react in, in the same way. This is not a unique feature of my character. I think it has something to do with the goodness that is inherent in a lot of people. And there's a lot of examples of uh, people sacrificing much, including lives, for others. I only traded wealth and fame and whatever. I traded that for danger and possibly jail. My life was not at risk. Jack Barsky had sealed his fate. He was staying in America for good. He was no longer living the life of a secret agent. And his identity as Albrecht Dietrich was to be just a distant memory. He was married now and had a daughter he adored. He had a job he loved. He headed to the suburbs to create a life for his growing family. I knew that the FBI would never find me. I knew that I would never see Germany again. The focus was now family and have a career living the American dream, which wasn't so bad. And I had put Galinda out of my mind. I just blocked it out completely. Good afternoon. We have a late and really, truly a sensational report coming in from East Germany. I'm Peter Jennings in New York just a short while ago. Astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. Good evening. Live from the Berlin Wall on the most historic night in this wall's history. These are the sights and sounds of the continuing celebration of Germans. Brandenburg Gate, symbol of Imperial Germany, can have seen few more dramatic days. West Berliners flocked there and scaled the wall that scarred their city. From the top, they chanted, down with the wall. East German guards looked on beyond an astonished crowd in East Berlin. And now we're at the threshold of the 1990s. And as we begin the new decade, I am reaching out to President Gorbachev, asking him to work with me to bring down the last barriers to a new world of freedom. Let us move beyond containment and once and for all, end the Cold War. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Alden Ehrenreich. This is The Agent. I was on a one-way street. I needed to go to the United States. She could not be allowed to interfere with that. There was no turning back. It was clear that I was going to become Henry Van Randall. Soviet troops were all over the place in Afghanistan today. Neither the American people nor I will support sending an Olympic team to Moscow. They were afraid that Ronald Reagan might want to accelerate the end of the world. To ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. 
I created for myself an artificial dual personality. I had two of them. The spy job got in, in the way of my real job. I knew that the FBI would never find me. I had a dream one night. I think I need to look for him again. I need to find him. Chapter 9. Walls. I remember my dad being around, and then we moved to Washingtonville, which is upstate New York. So we left the city. My dad got a better job. We got a house. I remember running around Washingtonville, New York, a lot, like in the backyard. We had a backyard. We had a pool. My early memories are very good and happy. And then we moved from Washingtonville, New York, to Pennsylvania. I had a pretty normal childhood for the most part. Lots of playing outside. I wasn't really allowed to like be on the computer inside or anything like that. It was always supposed to be outside. Not long after Jack moved his family to the suburbs, Chelsea became a big sister to her brother Jesse. Times were good, and the kids loved playing with their father. My dad was always there. He was always present. He was always playing with my brother and I. And so there's, there's like two aspects to my childhood. There's the part where I had a normal childhood. My parents were under the same roof. My dad was present, and he was... I was providing for the family very well, and my mom stayed home. She wasn't working. She made sure our needs were met. We always had her family around. We didn't have any of my dad's family around, but I had a normal childhood. I was, I was playing a lot. I, I like hung out with friends, and that was normal to me. I did have strange feelings about things, but otherwise my childhood, childhood was normal. I was allowed to explore and play and read books and try to figure out what I like and don't like in the world. And the only other part of it that wasn't great was my parents were always fighting. And from a very young age, around five years old, I started to think they should not be together. But other than those things, like everything was pretty normal. I went to a good school. I had friends like, it was like normal childhood. I, we never wanted for anything. Despite happy times, a lingering feeling that something was different stuck with Chelsea even at a young age. My mom had it like a sense of something wasn't really like right when we were still living in New York City because my dad would always change his routes to go to the doctor, to take me to the doctor or change or say I have to go to the post office and then be gone for like an hour and a half when it should have just been a drop off and come back out. My mom said she did notice some things, but she never questioned him because he was her financial support, I think. She's in this country. She doesn't have anybody else. Her priority at the time, I imagine, was to make sure that I was taken care of um, and to make sure that she was able to have like food and a roof and all yeah. that stuff. I, I don't think she was going to press too much. Chelsea would ask her father about his family and notice that details of his own childhood were nearly non-existent. Any evidence of his, his real self, his real past, like any pictures, any letters, anything that he could connect himself back to Germany and his growing up, his childhood and, and his family and friends, that's all gone. There were a couple of pictures of him at Baruch College with those friends that he had, but nothing prior to that. We had no childhood pictures of him. The story was always, we lost everything in a fire. That's not true. My dad had a story to cover up the whole thing about his parents. 
I went on Ancestry.com trying to find any information, couldn't find anything because he didn't give me the right names. He gave me fake names. He slipped up sometimes. Chelsea could not let go of her suspicions about something not being quite right about her father. I still don't have confirmation. Me still digging for information. My dad, we had stuff in the basement, just had like boxes and boxes of stuff that my parents had. And like, I used to always open boxes and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to find. It better not be something that I can't unsee, but I accepted that that was a possibility. I remember finding this bronze medal. It had all this Russian stuff on it. And I was like, what the hell is this? And I asked my dad. But I remember finding this bronze metal thing, and I was like, we don't just have this as a trinket. It was hidden. It wasn't like out in the open. It was in a box. The family settled in the tiny town of Mount Bethel, located at the foothills of the Poconos, a sleepy countryside full of winding roads that hug the Delaware River. It was a stark departure from Jack's days in New York City. We were living in rural Pennsylvania, and so our house was on a hill in the dead center of four acres of land. Our next-door neighbor had another four acres, and a neighbor across from us, and I still dream of this neighborhood all the time. I have crazy dreams about the house I lived in, the neighbor's house, that neighborhood. I'm always dreaming about that, but the, the houses were pretty far apart, so it's rural Pennsylvania. You interact, you know all of your neighbors, but nothing really seems too out of the ordinary because we're in the middle of nowhere. The back of our house had lots of floor-to-ceilings type windows, so huge window panes. We had a skylight. There was a lot of open visibility to the back of the house if you were looking at the house from the back. And I always felt uncomfortable about the house being so open. I'd prefer that the blinds are closed, you know, so that I don't feel like we're being watched. I always felt like we we're being watched, but it, it wasn't tied to anything. I didn't have any evidence of anything about us being watched. The house next door was really creepy because I didn't see anybody come out of it, except for one time. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Now that the Berlin Wall had come down and the Soviet Union had fallen to the point of near collapse, a single individual working inside the KGB decided to share what he knew with the West. BBC's Gordon Carrera explains. You know, Vasily Matrokin, a KGB archivist who, who decides he doesn't like what the KGB have done, um, turns against them and so copies, you know, has access as an archivist and copies by hand and takes to his home these notes and then keeps them. And then this amazing moment where he tries to walk in and he tries to give them, you know, to the, to the CIA and they kind of don't know who he is and, you know, it's the end of the Cold War. So they're kind of thinking, uh, you know, is this a provocation and we don't want to upset the Russians because now we're a bit more friendly with them. You know, we're, 
and, and he ends up going to the, a British embassy in the Baltics who, who basically go, this looks interesting, <laughs> you know, and then they eventually, you know, uh, exfiltrate um, both him and his archive, which had been buried in his dacha um, in Russia. Matrokin had been in charge of the KGB's top secret archives. Angry with his government's constant lies to its people, he began secretly taking notes on what he was reading, smuggling those notes out of KGB headquarters in his socks or trousers. And it is this treasure trove because it is just filled with leads um, about KGB operations and most importantly, leads about illegals. I mean, you know, about the hardest to find people. Now, one of the things that's interesting is some of those leads we know about, but I know that there are a lot we don't know about. But it was this amazing treasure trove, which then, you know, kind of counterintelligence officers from the FBI and elsewhere all kind of descend on it in, in England to kind of feed off it, because it's just this amazing stockpile of information. And it allows them then to go back and say, well, what did we not know about? Who did we not know about? My name is Joseph Riley. I'm 80 years old now, just turned 80. It's hard to believe. But anyway, I was an agent of the FBI for almost 32 years. I worked from 1967 to the end of 1998. I was in Honolulu from 83 to 89, and then from in the middle of 89, uh, transferred back to Philly, and I was immediately assigned to the resident agency in Allentown, about 65 miles north of uh, Philadelphia. That proved to be very fortunate for me. I thought when I was transferred to Allentown that it would be rather boring in terms of counterintelligence work. The first year or two I was here, it, you know, there was nothing special, routine cases. 93, I think it was 93. It was in the summer, I remember that, of 93. The FBI was essentially looking for an illegal agent with the last name Barsky. This was information that came from Matrokin, a Soviet de KGB defector. He had fragments of information about Jack, but we had to put one piece together and another. And as it turned out, Barsky was a relatively unusual name. There aren't many people in the country named Barsky, so it was pretty easy to locate him. And he was in the right age to fit the profile. So I was pretty sure that he was the guy Buried deep in Matrokin's archives was the name Jack Barsky. And now the FBI knew, too, and started their search for Barsky. Oh, I thought this was important right from the beginning, and the Bureau did as well. Illegal agents are so hard to find, and this was going to be an illegal stationed in this country. All we had to do was find him, and we did and then initiated the investigation in the summer of 93, going into his background, where he was working, everything about his life that we could uh, discover. He appeared to be the right guy from the beginning, and everything we developed over time just confirmed that fact. He was the right age. When we checked his background, like when he applied for a job at MetLife, he gave them background information, which was phony, basically. And uh, we discovered that. 
and a lot of small things. He didn't get a social security card until he was uh, in his late 20s, early 30s, I forget, but it was relatively late in life for someone who was here and working, going to school to get a social security card that late. So there were a lot of little things like that that uh, were beginning to add up. And we figured we had the right guy. So we initiated surveillance of him early on, uh, within a couple of months of discovering his location. He was living in Mount Bethel, Pennsylvania. Uh, from the Allentown office, it's about 15 miles. Now that the former Soviet Union had collapsed, the FBI began shifting their attention away from tracking down KGB illegals. No one knew for sure if the threat was still there, and if any agents still in the U.S. were still active. Things got muddled a bit in the 90s when the Berlin Wall came down and uh, the Soviet Union was dissipating, trying to convert to some form of democracy in those early years. So our mission had been heavily focused on the KGB and their activities here. And when the, the wall came down and these other developments took place, our mission became a little, well, what do we do now? We knew that there were agents operating here and all over the world for that matter, and that these agents were going to be kind of hanging out there, trying to figure out what do we do now? And the KGB was trying to figure out how they were going to operate them now. Uh, everything was muddled, uh, I think, on their part and, and with us. But we did have to find out when we heard of Jack, we had to discover what he had been doing, at least if he was not active now. What had he been up to before, before the Berlin Wall came down? Because he was here in the 80s when the Cold War was in full bloom, as it were. These were all fundamental questions that the FBI headquarters and myself, we would confer back and forth as to how do we proceed with this. My headquarters wanted to continue the investigation to try to find out what he was up to. We were conducting surveillance to see who he was contacting and so forth. And I could understand that, and I was all in favor of that, during the first year or so. However, after about a year or more, I began to lobby on behalf of picking him up, arresting him. I thought we were wasting our time going further and further on with the investigation when I believed if we picked him up and basically arrested him, that he would cooperate with us. My headquarters didn't think that he would. They thought he was a well-trained agent, and that he was, uh, he was not going to cooperate. He might pretend to cooperate, but he was not going to, and, and we were going to lose uh, whatever benefit we might get from following him and just uh, pursuing the investigation further. All of which I felt was superfluous because we had been following him and we never could discover that he was up to anything, even when his wife traveled to England, they traveled to Canada at one point, we never came up with any nefarious activity. Another matter, too, which came up was a matter of concern regarding alerting him, was the interview of the parents of the dead child, Jack Barsky. 
Matrokin gave us this information that uh, a KGB agent stationed in Washington, D.C. had visited a cemetery uh, in the D.C. area and came up with a name off a tombstone. He then went and got background information about this dead child. The child, the deceased child was only 10 or 11 years old when he died. And he went and got a birth certificate for the child, pretending to be the child's father and uh, a death certificate. He got background information. They created a, a background from this dead child. We found out where the parents of that child were still living in Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C. And I was unsure as to go whether to interview the parents or not, because if they made a stink, if they were upset or for any reason decided to make known the fact that the FBI was investigating some guy who took the identity of their deceased child, it would, of course, get back to him. I had to take a gamble. Uh, my headquarters wanted them interviewed, and I did the interview. I drove down there. I interviewed them a couple of times. And they were very nice people, and they were very cooperative. They were shocked. I mean, this was a big surprise to them, obviously. And uh, I had to tell them that it involved an FBI investigation that was very sensitive and very secret. And we had to get them to agree not to divulge the fact that the FBI was there investigating a matter related to their deceased child. And they agreed to that. They kept to the agreement. And I, I had to go back another time and talk with them just to reinforce uh, my relationship with them and to thank them for being so cooperative with us. They had a daughter and they told their daughter and they, have a, they had another son as well. And the children were informed by their parents. So the children then were upset and concerned about what was going on here. It became a personal relationship between me and them, the parents. They had to trust me, and uh, I had to convince them that it was extremely important for them to be quiet about our interest in investigating the person who was using the name of their deceased child. As their investigation into Jack Barsky's work as an illegal expanded, Riley and the FBI pursued other leads to try to understand what, exactly, Jack Barsky had been up to in the United States, and who he might be working with. He had a friend who was from Cuba, and when that came up, my headquarters thought, oh, this is, this is the break we've been looking for, especially because I believe he had an apartment in New York and there were Russians living in the apartment in New York. We investigated Gerard Boo to try to find out who the hell he was. I rented a, a I, I kind of bought real estate as an investment. So I rented an apartment to a Russian, uh, the second in command of the Russian mission by Riverdale and the FBI came to see me and and they kind of questioned me for around uh, two hours uh, I remember that when they first came I asked them to see the badge 
and the FBI badge, which is almost looks as, as big as a passport because I wanted to make sure that I knew who they were. And they interviewed me for around two hours, and and the reason there was the reason why they uh, they told me that they were interviewing me was because uh, the the guy from the Russian mission was living outside the complex, and they thought that that would be uh, better mobility for him to do whatever he needed to do. The way they actually interview you is really interesting because they. They, they, you know, they take, uh, uh, you can just follow the conversation and then eventually like an hour and a half later, they come back and ask you the same question to see whether you were lying. They ask you kind of cigarettes, they smoke, uh, whether, you know, a previous swipe, all this other stuff. And they asked me to, uh, to let them into the apartment. So I contacted a, a very close friend and accountant friend of mine and he said should I get an attorney or something like that he says no no if you, you should actually let them into the apartment otherwise they could make your life miserable. I can't remember how long it may have taken but we did investigate his background he had fled from Cuba was established here in the United States had a good job with MetLife uh, was a friend of Jack he had this apartment in New York that he had sublet to a couple of Russians Eventually, the, 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 the tenant, the Russian fellow, called me and told me there was a problem with the bathroom. So I called the, the, the number that the FBI had given me. It was strange, but, you know, I, I came from Cuba, right? Cuba is a communist country, and the surveillance in Cuba is way higher than anything that could happen in the United States. I figured that it has something to do with uh, me being Cuban and, and working in the technology area. And the Russian guy, you know, because the, the way they were questioning me was not in regards to his whereabouts. So what is it that the guy did, but in regards to how well did I know him? Because you understand, they, they would ask me things like, uh, what kind of cigarettes does he smoke? And when you had a drink, did you offer a drink? What drink was it? Was that a, what brand was the vodka? You know, stuff like that. And then he would come back around again just to ask me things that were kind of personal that you would only know if you were closely a close friend of them. I guess they wanted to know whether I was really friendly with him or not. We investigated that, and it just didn't seem to go anywhere. Things would happen, and interviews would come up, which became problematic because we didn't want to alert Jack as to the investigation that was, that was going on, obviously. And Gerard Boo was uh, an indication of that. I believe I was not in favor of interviewing him because I thought he might, you know, inform Jack of the fact that, hey, the FBI is asking me questions about you. Jack would, as an agent, he was trained then to immediately flee. He had exit papers. We knew that he had them. We didn't know where they were, but that he would flee the country and we would lose him. And I was afraid that might happen, and I didn't want to lose him. I wanted to eventually arrest him and debrief him and find out everything about his training and about what he had done here in this country. The choices are to find a way to arrest him and convict him of a violation of federal statute so we could put him in prison as a backstop. Our primary purpose, and I discussed this with my headquarters, our primary purpose was to recruit him, 
to work for us as a double agent. That standard procedure when you find an illegal. If he cooperates, you want to operate him as a double agent. As the FBI tried to figure out what to do with Jack, they watched him from the shadows. And I had been watching Jack from a distance with my binoculars. I was pretending to be a bird watcher. That first three or four months during the nice weather of the summer and the fall, and just watching him work in his backyard, watching him interact with his children and with his wife. Early on, it's amazing what you can pick up just watching people without even hearing anything. I was too far away to hear anything. But I I could tell that Jack's relationship with his wife was, was not real warm. At least that was the impression I got. But his relationship with his children was very warm and uh, loving. He played with them. He would interrupt his work to play with them. He played basketball with his daughter in the, in the driveway. He was just very, he was a very good father, I thought. As time went on, now during the winter months, it was more difficult, obviously, to do that. And, but the next summer, I did it again, periodically. And over time, I just got the feeling that he was very Americanized, that he had a family that he was not going to leave easily, and that if we arrested him and we gave him the option of cooperating with us, staying out of jail, uh, because the charges we had against him were passport violations, and we had discussed this with the U.S. Attorney's Office. They were willing to indict him and prosecute him for the passport violations if he didn't cooperate. I felt that he would, but of course we had to have that as a backstop. We had his house under surveillance, and again, periodically, it wasn't 24-7. We just couldn't do that. We had to pick and choose our, our times to do it. The house next door, the closest one, was occupied by an, a couple. They were in there, I'd say late 40s, early 50s. Periodically, the guy would bring his girlfriend home during the day to the house. And then one day, his wife came home early and caught him flagrante delicto. <laughs> she caught him in the house in bed with the girlfriend. So shortly after, the house goes up for sale. They're, they got a divorce and the house uh, went up for sale. The FBI jumped at the opportunity and purchased the house next door to Jack. I talked about it with my headquarters. And again, at this point, I was more advocating that we arrest him. I didn't want the investigation to continue on and on and on when I thought he was no longer active. I mean, what's the point if he's no longer actively spying, as it were? But my headquarters felt uh, we could continue the surveillance in a more effective way if we owned the house next door. And we had agents in there who could tell you exactly when he's leaving, when he isn't. Chelsea and her brother continued to live a quiet existence in rural Pennsylvania. But something continued to bother her about the surroundings. I wasn't even a teenager. I was still, it was still preteen years, like around that time. So I, I was not really picking up on anything that was that could have been different. Um, I was busy being a kid. I was worried about basketball. I was making poison ivy traps in the backyard with my brother. It was like a lot of mad science experiments. 
But I was too busy doing all of that. I didn't really pick up on anything because I wasn't looking for anything. I didn't know I needed to look for anything. I didn't know that there was anything going on. But of course, like, I had that strange feeling that we were being watched. If I were to tell my parents that I'm imagining that we're being watched, especially my dad, he would be like, he would just be dismissive and just say, you're just making that up. You're just imagining things. You're scaring yourself for no reason. There was a clothesline in the backyard of their house next door to us. I never saw clothes on that line. My mom put clothes on our clothesline all the time. The grass was always cut. I never saw anybody mowing the grass. The curtains in that house were always closed. I never saw a car. That house was just like an empty vessel to me. And it was just like, there's nobody there. So like, it was weird. And then at night, I had a lot of feelings about us being watched. Next time on The Agent. For many years, forgot that I even used to be an agent. I didn't think about it anymore. I was so in a different world. I never thought the other world would catch up with me. How would they? I was safe. What is known in the Bureau is a trash cover. I was going through his trash. We couldn't provide evidence that he was actually spying because if we did we would lose him if such evidence existed i gotta tell you something this is, maybe that proves to you that uh that that i am not your enemy I, I drive up and put my coins in and just as i'm trying to drive off a state trooper in uniform in front of my car and says hello the agent is a production of imperative entertainment in association with Windjoy and is created, written, produced, and edited by Jason Hoke. Narration by Alden Ehrenreich. Executive producers are Jason Hoke, Jack Barsky, and Alden Ehrenreich. Sound engineering and additional editing by Shane Freeman. Our original score by Joshua Klebe. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. If you'd like to learn more about this story, make sure to read Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Entangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America by Jack Barsky. Have questions? Email us at podcast at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love this show, tell your friends and leave us a positive review. Thanks again for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.